0: good afternoon everyone Um, i'm kathy diamond back again with our monthly book talk over zoom and the um, the call-in line but we have some good news at least good news for me that the library has decided that they are going to be we're going to be switching to in person starting next month. So September, October, and November will be in person, God willing, and whatever health COVID permitting, um, which is going to be really fun. I'm really looking forward to having some give and take because I tell you, it's as I keep saying, it's a little weird looking at myself while I'm talking with no interaction. So I'm really looking forward to seeing you in person next month. That's my exciting news. Um, the book that I'm going to be talking about today, and I hope that there are you, those of you who are listening, who read the book, who will ask some questions on on the chat because I'll I'll answer them. I'd love to. At least it's sort of a semblance of give and take a little bit. Other than as I say, me looking at myself talking. So the book is called "Everyone Knows." your mother is a witch and it's um, a book, a second novel by a writer. They call her a Canadian writer because she was born in Toronto. Her name is Rivka Galchen. I think her father's name was pronounced Galchen. He's Israeli, Um, but I think I'm pronouncing it Galchen, which is the way I heard her being introduced on different, different talks that I listened to with her. And um, so she is an author, as I said, who was born in Toronto, but now apparently divides her time between New York City and Montreal. She, um, her parents were are Israeli academics, and when, and she was born in Toronto early years and well very early years in Toronto because when she was young her parents relocated to the United States. So she did most of her growing up in a place called Norman, Oklahoma. This is interesting. Um, Where her father, Gal Galchen, was a professor of meteorology at the University of Oklahoma. And her mother was a computer programmer at the National Severe Storms Laboratory. This, okay, this interesting background, just because these are parents who... um, who had a lot to do and an interest in the weather, obviously, because her first novel, why am I telling you all this? Besides that, it, I don't know found it interesting. Her first novel was called Atmospheric Disturbances. So I thought that was kind of appropriate, given that that's what her parents spent their careers doing. But she has an interesting background, Ritka Galkhan herself. She is. She has an MD. She's a medical doctor. And actually her specialty was psychiatry. So she is a psychiatrist by training, by original training. Um, and after that, I guess she decided to switch careers because after, imagine this is, this is no woman who without intellectual abilities because she goes through medical school, she becomes a psychiatrist, then she switches and earns herself a master's in fine arts in writing from Columbia University, uh, where she received a fellowship and where she now is a lecturer. She's received a number of awards for her writing. So it seems that that's what she does now. As far as I can tell, there was no mention of her being a psychiatrist, um, at least not that I could find. The mention, when I looked up some information about it, because I was very interested in her background, is, is, is mainly the writing. And her, so, as I said, her first novel is entitled Atmospheric Disturbances, and it was published in May of 2008. It was the finalist for several prizes, including the Governor General's Award and the Canadian Writers Trust's Fiction Prize for that year. In 2010, the New Yorker chose her as one of its 20 under 40, which are 20, the 20 writers they consider the most interesting to write to watch under the age of 40. She also had received a number of American fellowships in 2015, she received a Guggenheim fellowship. And these are useful, these fellowships, besides being prestigious, they're useful because they come come along with some money. And occasionally it seems like even a house somewhere or a villa in Italy, I forget which one, I think maybe that's the Guggenheim Prize. So it's very nice for a writer to receive these awards. So she's received quite a number of awards. She has also published a short story collection. So first was her first novel, This Atmospheric Disturbances. And then secondly, she published a short story collection called American Innovations, which was published in 2014. And it was long listed for the 2014 Scotiabank Giller Prize. So even though, well, she she teaches at Columbia, I guess because she's still in Montreal, sometimes lives in Montreal, she's considered a Canadian writer and therefore qualifies for all these Canadian prizes. And in this short story collection, she did some, does something interesting, which seems to follow, and then everyone knows your mother is a witch, is her next novel that came after the short story collection um, of 2014. And what did she do in this short story collection? Each story, in her collection is based on a well-known short story by another author. But what does she do in this fictitious conceit of a writer? She switches the narrator, because in all these, the original short stories are by men and the narrators are male. She switches the narrators to females and she changes slightly the elements of the story. So, and she entitled the collection, American Innovation. For example, one was a Henry James story. And I forget what, what who the authors of the other ones were, but well-known male writers. So, you, you see that she's got an interest in telling things from a female point of view. In 2016, she then published a little, a, a, well, a book of essays called Little Labours, which was a book of essays about motherhood. In 2021, she published her second novel, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, which was shortlisted for the 2021 Atwood Gibson Writers' Trust Fiction Prize. She writes as well for several national magazines, including The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, and The New York Times Magazine. As well, she she contributes criticism and essays to the London Review of Books. And there you have a bit of introduction to to Rivka Gautzen herself. So what is this book about? This book begins in the year, it begins in the beginning, in 1618, the beginning of the 17th century. And in this book, what she does is she reimagines, just as she in her short story collection, reimagined the, the stories written by male writers and reimagines them from the point of view of a female. In this novel, she reimagines a real life witch hunt that took place in Leonberg in the German, there was no Germany as a country in that year, in the German lands of the Holy Roman Empire, which was what it was then at the beginning of the 17th century. And who is the accused in this book? Everyone knows your mother is a witch. Who is this woman? The accused is a woman by the name of Katharina Kepler, And if the name Kepler sounds familiar to you, yes, you are correct. She is the mother of Johannes Kepler, the famous mathematician and astronomer, Johannes. In this fictionalized account of a true story, Galchen neatly splits the difference between respecting the record of Kepler's life, of Katharina Kepler's life, as well as taking careful liberties, liberties but done carefully, researched properly, to build out the world around her. The novel begins with Katharina's first person narration of the accusation that started it all. There was a woman, and this is the true, the name of the woman, Ursula Reinbold, the wife of a glazier who claimed that Katharina's use of witchcraft is the cause of her chronic pain. When the governor insists that Katharina reverse the spell, she declares that, and this is Katharina responding, she had done nothing to injure Ursula and could do nothing to cure her and things quickly escalate from there. I'd like to read you the opening passage and you will get an idea of the voice of the narrator. Well, there are actually two narrators to the story. One of the narrators is Katharina, or Katharina I suppose she would be in German, Katharina herself telling her account and interspersed with it is another first person narrator, and that is the voice of her neighbor. Her neighbor who she is not really, well, hasn't known for her whole life, but he moved, she moved in next door to him a few years earlier, and she has requested his help because she is illiterate. Her children can read, but she was never, she never herself learned to read. So she has to be dependent on someone else to help her with this accusation. So, but the first voice is the one of Katharina herself. And this is what she says. Herein, I begin my account with the help of my neighbor, Simon Sattler. And he's going to be the other voice, this neighbor, Simon Sattler. Since I am unable to read or write, I maintain that I am not a witch, never have been a witch, I'm a relative to no witches, but from very early on in life, I had enemies. So it's an interesting way to start. I'm not a witch, but I had enemies. And this is going to be a book about a witch hunt in which, you know, we use the term witch hunt now. It's come to be known. It's it's a term for when somebody is accused of something, um, whether truly or falsely, but when many accusers come and accuse a person of something that quickly can escalate and it has a tone of negativity and a tone of harassment and persecution to, to what is being done to this person. So we, we use the term witch hunt today, not necessarily that the person is a witch, but originally and back in this time in the year 1618, witch hunt meant literally that. And it was women who were accused of sorcery and of witchcraft in this terrible time. And I didn't realize, that in Germany at that time, in, at the beginning of the 17th century, hundreds of women were accused of witchcraft. And we think of, you know, you think of the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts, you think of Arthur Miller's famous play, The Crucible, but, um, but this was much, much worse. And these women were tortured and they were burnt at the stake, or they were blown up, gunpowder was put around their neck, and they were exploded horrible things because they were accused of having these powers. So, anybody who had a grudge against a woman or her family and wanted to do them evil would present this charge of witchcraft or sorcery at the local, whatever in the town or the city that they lived. And these trials took place and it seemed like people were only too too eager, and that's a whole other topic for discussion why, um, to blame their ills and their problems on some poor woman who provoked their dislike or their anger or their ire. In any case, but she says in her voice, and and just, just to give you an idea of the voice of Katharina, the narrator, she is an old woman when we meet her. She's in her 70s, which turns out she's one of the oldest citizens in her town, because remember, in the 1600s, to live to your 70s was not a common thing. There, were, there was no penicillin, there were no you know, there was no modern medicine. It was just the very beginning. And that's also interesting to note when the author has set this story because this is the beginning of modern medicine. But before that, it's always been traditional medicine. I mean, people figured out what, what helped and what cured in the ways that they could. And mainly those who did the cures and developed these remedies, herbal remedies and other sorts, tended to be women so they were the healers until um, now there was going to be a change and now with the advent of modern medicine this is kind of an irony built in here which with also is very much wants us to notice that as medicine is going to get more sophisticated as it is going to become a science it's going to be relegated to the domain of men Because women are not going to be able to do this anymore, because they are not going to be going to university in the 1700s and 1800s, maybe it'll start at the end of the 1800s, but not until then. So the doctors who are going to be revered as figures of great importance in society, because they can help people with more science as scientific knowledge increase is going to be men, but right now they're women. And so this is also something that she very much wants to point out. So... But the voice of Katerina, who, as I said, she's this 70-something-year-old woman who's a very old, old, old woman. Nowadays, 70 is not so old, but then it was. And so, you know, she thinks we attribute wisdom to this older woman, and she does have wisdom, but she also has a very sarcastic and, and, and biting tongue, and she's not shy to use it, which does not enamor her, often with her neighbors. So you could see that people might get annoyed at her. But okay, you could get annoyed at your neighbor, you might find them caustic, or you might not like what they say. But back in these times, it was not, you know, it was dangerous. When it was this craze of witch hunts, it was not you know, innocuous to to say something, and then your neighbor could get angry and could accuse you of being a witch, and all kinds of terrible things could be done to you. So this was a very dangerous time to live in. So she says, but from very early on in life, I had enemies. When I was a child, our cow mare at my father's inn was cross and bitter toward me. I don't know why. I wouldn't hesitate to put a blue silk ribbon on her neck if she were here today. She died from the milk fever, which was no doing of mine. Though as a young child, I felt it was my doing. Because Mary had kicked me and I had called her fat kidney. Was she my enemy? It takes time and experience to gain a cow's trust. Now I'm 70 some years old. I'll spend no more time on the enemies or loves of my youth and middle age. I'll say only that I have never before had even the smallest run-in with the law, not for fighting, not for cursing, not for licentiousness, not for the pettiest theft. Yet attributed to me in this trial is the power to poison, to make lame, to pass through locked doors, to be the death of sheep, goats, cows, infants, and grapevines, even to cure at will. I can't even win at backgammon, as you know. That's how she introduces herself. If my defense fails, she continues, a confession will be sought through torture, first with thumbscrews, then with leg braces, then with the rack or something like that. It depends who the council hires for the job. If mercy is taken upon me, I will be beheaded and then burnt. If no mercy is taken, I'll be burned without first being beheaded. That happened to seven women last year in Regensburg. My children with some help have been coordinating my defense. There are two things that a woman must do alone. She does her own believing and her own dying. So says Martin Luther, or so you say that Martin Luther says or said. I was born the year Luther died. I took Catholic communion only one time in error. My daughter Greta is married to a pastor who says that's okay. My son Hans agrees. I hold Luther in the highest esteem. He too was vilified. Again, I'm grateful to you, Simon, for sitting with me, for writing for me, and for being my legal guardian. This is my truest testimony. So this is how she introduces it. And she's talking, so I guess here is to the readers, but she's also talking to Simon, her neighbor, who is going to be, he has to be her legal guardian because apparently in those days, a woman couldn't be her own guardian. Like she couldn't go to a court on her own. She couldn't do anything really. She wasn't a legal person on her own as well as she was not literate. So she had asked, she asked this neighbor to represent her because her children don't live with her. I guess she doesn't want to burden her children with it. Uh, although they are helping with her defense. And Hans, who she refers to as my Hans, is Johannes Kepler, the famed mathematician, mathematician and astronomer. So it's interesting because this book is not about Kepler, about Johannes Kepler, who we know, you know most you know, many people who are familiar, anybody who did a, you know, introduction to history of science or astronomy or mathematics knows the name Kepler, but it's his mother who she writes about here. So this is Rifka Galvin, you know, taking a twist again on what you would expect. She's not writing it from the point of view of the man, the famous son, she's writing it from the point of view and who wants to tell the story of his mother. But again, it's not fictitious because Johannes Kepler's mother really was accused of being a witch. And Kepler, the son Johannes, he was instrumental in her defense. He really did take a year off his time in order to try and put together his mother's defense. And then she continues the story by saying um, on a Tuesday morning, in May mid-morning of the year 1615, four long years ago now. So when she's telling this 1619, actually, there was a gentle knock at my door and that's when she gets this summons. Katharina, you have to come with us and she goes and she goes and she is called to the office of the local um, ducal governor whose name is Einhorn. And she calls him, she has these sarcastic nicknames for everybody as she writes. So the ducal governor of the local area she calls him the false unicorn. and Oh, yes, Einhorn is unicorn. So she calls him the false unicorn and she makes fun of it. And she goes to him and she says, I don't understand. What's this charge? And she goes with her neighbor because she has to go with somebody because she's not a a legal person on her own. And it said that who has accused her uh, and of what? And it turns out that somebody in her town has accused her of um, doing something that causes this Ursula um, Reinbold, sorry, great pain. This Ursula Reinbold, the wife of the glazier, and as as Katharina, our narrator, and our our main character says, her husband is a third-rate glazier. He's not even a good one. And so she always refers to him as the third-rate glazier. And you'd think, and this is part of Katharina's problem, is that the women who were accused, apparently they were expected to grovel and to cry and to try and evoke sympathy for themselves in front of the tribunals, these women who were accused of witchcraft. And if they cried and they showed enough remorse um, for what they had purportedly done, even if they said they didn't do it, but sometimes they had to figure out, should they say they did it, should they say they didn't. But if they were remorseful enough, then sometimes the charges were dismissed against them. But Katharina, can't seem to do that. She has, as I said, a very acerbic tongue, and she's very independent-minded, and she's not going to kowtow to anyone, at least not as we meet her at the beginning. So it begins with this first-person narration of the accusation that started it with this Ursula Reinbold, who claims that Katharina cast a spell on her. She gave her this potion to drink, and ever since then, she Ursula has had chronic pain. And the governor, this ducal governor, then says to Catarina, you have to reverse the spell. And she says, but I didn't do anything to injure Ursula. And because I didn't do anything, I can't undo anything. I'm not a witch. I don't know how to do this. But she didn't deny it, as would have been better for her if she would have said, okay, 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 I'll reverse the spell. Um, And things quickly escalate from there. And it's then that the author launches into a kind of choral narrative blending the different voices and perspectives and forms and this approach it's interesting it highlights the contradictory testimonies and this rumor mongering that characterizes the trial from the outset. Katerina is and isn't responsible for Ursula's chronic pain. Some voices, yes, some voices, no, she did. And she didn't encourage young women to make pacts with the devil. And first you have Ursula's accusation against her. And then as this thing like gathers momentum, the ta- other townsfolk say, "Oh, well, this is fun. Let's jump on this bandwagon. And they come and they present their testimony. This Katharina did this to me. She looked at me that way. Um, and after then I had this problem. Or she touched me on my arm and then I got this huge bruise and then my arm has been aching ever since she cast a spell on me. Or another one comes in and says she she tempted, she told these young innocent girls that they should dance with the devil and meet the devil at midnight and then they would have a life of pleasure and licentiousness she's she's proposing to these young girls to cavort with the devil and she and is and like i never did any of this as she, whenever she's able to speak um and she lead, but with, and, and as i said this was a true trial And these accusations against her, some of them were exactly what happened because Galvin looked at the records and she even at the end of the book, she quotes her sources and she says, for those those of you who are interested, you can, she said, there's one book, some very scholarly book that she got much of her information about. This scholarly book was a very long, thick book about the about the trial about the trial of Katharina kepler and it it's called the astronomer and the witch johannes kepler's fight for his mother and that's the scholarly book that Galchen says she read um because she just wanted to know because when when she was asked what got you interested what made you write this book how did you come to this subject and she said I, I wanted to know, simply I wanted to know more about Johannes Kepler, like just for my own interest, she said. And I found this book, a celebrated nonfiction book, this, uh, The Astronomer and the Witch, and I read it because I just wanted information. But there was one detail in this book, which was a neighbor of asked Johannes Kepler's mother, asking to be dismissed from serving henceforth as her legal guardian. And that caught my attention. And I said, ah, a neighbor who did not want to be, he wants to be dismissed from the position of being her legal guardian. That, said Rivka Galhan caught my heart, this is the way she writes, this is at the in the acknowledgements at the end, and opened up this novel for me. I have not used that, that neighbor's real name, his real name was Weit Schumacher, because his voice and his life in this novel are wholly imagined. And then she goes on to say, the author, the letters that appear in this novel are based on real letters. The language used in the depositions that, that, you know, deposed before the court during this process is largely imagined. The exception being the opening question used throughout which is a straight translation of what is found in the trial record. And this question is, and it appears in chapter after chapter, whenever, well, in the chapters in which witnesses are called up. And what's this opening statement? And as she said, this is taken verbatim from the translation of the trial. Do you understand that any false testimony you knowingly give will provoke God's great anger in your earthly life and will deliver your soul unto Satan upon your death. This is what each, you know, each um, witness or each accuser coming to the court to give testimony, this is what they are asked. And of course they all answer yes. Well, some of them answer yes with some commentary I do or some, some other. Um, state your name and age, they state their name and age. You have something to share with the court about Frau Kepler. And that's how it goes. But so every chapter always begins. Thank you for coming here today. Do you understand that any false testimony? So this way you get the multiple voices of the different townsfolk, some of them who accuse her, others who come to testify on her behalf, uh, mainly, though, they come to accuse her. So this is the choral narrative. And in between, you have Katerina telling her story as this process goes on. And it drags on for quite a while. Um, And also the voice of this neighbor, occasionally, who is her legal, who is agreed to be her legal guardian. And so, um, so she says, Ursula's chronic pain, um, pacts with the devil, that she was putting a spell on the mother of a sick child. And she and so but you don't know which are the real ones, which are the real records, as she says, and which are the ones that she made up. So and the way and the fact that she can do this so cleverly is an attestation to show that she has the author has a deft ear for historical voice, because, yes, you could this is definitely historical fiction based on real, but a whole but a recreation of the characters. And it shows us how the difference between truth and falsehood or in current terms you could say real news and fake news this has always been a point of contention witness accounts grow more outlandish as the trial progresses and you read them and you think oh my goodness but again this was real just as we know that witch hunts were real, people were burnt at the stake Um, in in, in Jewish history. Jews were very often the victims during those horrific years of the Crusades and other terrible times. But in this case, it wasn't Jews that she's writing about. these These were fellow Christians. Although there was a religious aspect to this too, because there were the wars between the Catholics and the reformers, such as Martin Luther, who was a reformer and these, these wars were very serious and the Catholics and the Protestants were, you know, they, they fought each other. By the end, as these accusations grow, because it's just from the beginning when this Ursula says, oh, she gave me this thing to drink and from then on I've had this chronic pain, but the accusations grow more and more absurd. By the end of the trial, because that's the tr- as the trial progresses, Katerina has also been accused of being able to pass through locked doors, putting a pig in the path of an apple cart and riding a goat, this is seriously, backward to its death. And Galvin is thorough in producing all of the evidence against Katerina, most of it flimsy, Hearsay, and that was in the real, in the real trial. The sum of the evidence is shown to illustrate, and I think that's one of the main points of this piece of fiction. But the, but the, the the what she wants to say with this piece of fiction is that there is a when there is a larger culture of fear and misinformation in the absence of scientific and medical knowledge that's when dangerous things can happen. And you know, it seems all too familiar today as we've gone through, as we live and are still living in COVID times. At the beginning, there was such fear because even though we lived in 2020, when COVID began with all our modern medicine and scientific knowledge, four centuries after this story took place, we, the world was brought to its knees by the coronavirus. And I mean, we've all been living through this. And then the whole development of vaccines and the anti vaxxers and those who believed in the vaccine, those who don't believe in the vaccine, and the things that have been going on, and how divisive the idea of vaccination and mask wearing has become how people don't talk to each other, how it's been so politicized. It's a frightening, you know, recreation. I think it's not for nothing that Gachen published, wrote and published, um, wrote, sorry about that, didn't turn off my cell phone, wrote and published this book when, when she did. She also, the author, considers the role that economic iniquity and personal prejudice played in stoking witch hunts. Because it turns out, it seems, that, that Katerina, while she's not, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to tell for me, a wealthy woman, what does this Ursula, who's accusing her with her third-rate glazier husband, they accuse her of, you know, casting the spell and Ursula's in great pain. And Ursula doesn't come across as a very sympathetic character. She's, she's, she's slovenly and unkempt and she's apparently quite um, promiscuous. According to Katerina's account, she has no children. Katerina has raised four children to adulthood, which again, in the early 1600s, that was no small feat. Because as this book shows, Early women died in childbirth, babies died in childbirth, people, children died at early ages. And that was part of life. And so much part of life that for for a woman to raise four children to adulthood was no small thing. So there could have been great envy on the part of this Ursula, the neighbor who had no children of her own. But in any case, what are they demanding of Katerina? They're accusing her of this, casting this spell, but they also want to be paid a thousand dollars for the, the currency at the time. And then they would withdraw the charge. So basically, they, she's a woman who has the means or they think she has the means and they're blackmailing her. And that's what comes across in this. So that's why Galifian also considers the role that economic iniquity and personal prejudice played in stoking these witch hunts. It's terrifying. And this choral, you know, this voice of a chorus, quality of the novel doesn't so much create a large world for our, our main character, Katerina, to move in, as it establishes the limitations that are faced by a woman like herself. She is widowed. She is, it seems, considered wealthy. She doesn't say she's wealthy, but I guess the fact that they think, oh, she has this money, so she's she's considered wealthy, she's self-directed, she's clever, and she's independent. That we can get from her voice. And those, but she faces limitations. And as she goes about her life, now a woman, an old, old, old woman in her early 70s or mid-70s, the townspeople gossip incessantly about her and cast harsh judgments. Her approach to life, at least the way the author presents her. And again, it's a piece of fiction and the author has what she wants to say. So, you know, I don't know whether the real Katerina Kepler was like this or not, but in the book and and the way the author has used her main character is a reminder uh, that here is a woman whose approach to life is not only out of step with the tradition of the time, but of what could be What could be for a woman like her, says the author, imagines the author, if only the economic and social barriers were not so oppressive for women at the time. So I guess you could say this is a very feminist story. Again, I don't know if the real, I didn't read any more information about Katharina Kepler other than, yes. She was accused, because I did look a little bit, but she was accused of, of witchcraft, and her son, Johannes, the the, the famous astronomer and mathematician, um, and it seems that people were jealous of him as well, because he was a famous son, and he was living off in Prague, and so for these townsfolk in this small town, he was a boy who had really made it good. He had this prestigious position, and so it was natural that people were jealous of her. Um, but in the imagined version, in this fictitious version, it really is a look at a woman in, her, in this particular situation, a smart, um, a smart, you know, very clever and canny woman who is, no matter what, limited by what women could do at the time. By moving between chapters of interior observation, these the narrators, you know, they're, they're, they're observing. To excerpts of the townsfolk's testimony, the author creates a rhythm that keeps this otherwise straightforward story, because the story really is the story of the trial. What happens at the beginning? She's accused. And at the end, you know, what happens? Is she going to be convicted or not? Is she going to be burnt Um, at the stake or is she going to be let go so that's the story but because you have the excerpts of and the voices of the townsfolk testimony as well as the occasional chapters by her neighbor who has his own first person voice that keeps the story engaging because you could say oh well not that much happens um, because it's this tedious process of the trial but I guess in a way you this is not let's say a New York Times bestseller in the sense that it, this is a, a, how did one reviewer called it? This is a reader's writer, Rivka Yalhan. It takes, you know, not that there's anything difficult to read, it's not a long book, but there is a purpose to what she wants to stay, say here. And she keeps it engaging by mixing the voices of Katerina with those testimonies of the townsfolk. She also describes Katerina's children One of them, it seems, has, one of them has died, Um, her son, son Heinrich, who, in one, and who was a very difficult son, but Katharina stood by him and defended him when he was in troubles. Unfortunately, he died, so even though he did make it to adulthood, he is no longer, she has three living children at the point when the story takes place. As a witch hunt narrative, This book, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, doesn't cover, as I said, entirely new terrain. There have been stories about witch hunts before. And many of us are familiar with, because we're North American, with Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which was written in 1953. Um, But the form and the technique that she uses here are different. As I said, this kind of chorus approach, choral approach to her writing, which elevates the novel and frames Katerina's ordeal as a timeless example of how smart, independent women are, if you want to take it from this feminist perspective, routinely silenced and oppressed, which is what the author seems to want to do. And Galton deliberately illustrates Katharina's complexities and contradictions. As I said, she's bright, she's humorous, and she's a bit of a busybody. And she's also a bit snobbish, too. And she engage and she does engage in gossip, the same kind of gossip that ultimately gets her imprisoned, because she is imprisoned by the end of the story. She's very cavalier about sharing her opinions which often take the form of these very cutting quips, which are in the book. I mean, she's funny, but she's very cutting. Um, But Galton juxtaposes the less admirable aspects of her personality with a sense of world weariness because she's attained her 70 something years. So she has the um, privilege of being world weary and a tendency toward maternal care Those two traits that were shaped by, apparently, the death of three of her seven children, the premature death, and the disappearance of another child, Heinrich, who ran away to become a soldier at age 16. He lived into childhood, as I said, but is in heaven at the time of the trial. This is Katharina speaking. So she had seven children, four lived to adulthood, which was a pretty good record at, of the time. Hans, so she has Hans, Johannes, famous Johannes, Christoph and Greta are still here, she tells us. Throughout the trial, she appears outwardly calm and confident, but her, narr- her narration reveals her to still be riddled with grief grief at the death of her son her husband it seems had deserted her years earlier so there's no grief for him but it's this son Heinrich who had been away from home for 25 years returned not long before his death following fevers and confusion and then he dies and then she describes that scene but some of them and some of the most riveting scenes of the book, though, are those in which Johannes, who she calls Hans, testifies in court. And the reception of this testimony is shaped by the culture around him. We get to see in this book in which religious authorities reigned, because this was still the beginning of the 17th century. Science was just beginning, at least in you know, the, the, the Western world, Probably in other civilizations in the East, maybe, and they, they were more advanced. But Europe had been going through very dark or dark ages, the previous centuries. So it was still religious authorities, whether they were Catholic or whether they were Protestant, they reigned. And science was still seen as heretical. So you had Katerina's son, Katerina who's accused of witchcraft. Her son, Johannes, who's this educated, brilliant mathematician and astronomer, although he's called an astrologer, which is really interesting. And people keep asking, Katarina, if won't your son, couldn't he make a a horoscope for me? Because apparently back then, astronomy and astrology were the same thing. There was no differentiation, which is so interesting, because nowadays we think of astrology as sort of, you know, hocus pocus with the stars, and astronomy is the real science. But back then, astronomy and astrology were one, it was really at the beginning. And he's the scientist, and he has to come and testify and try and defend his mother. And he desperately wants her, of course, to be free. And he's trying his best, but he has to be very careful because he, as a scientist, is looked down upon or looked at with great, you know, he's looked askance, but he's looked at with suspicion and in terms with great dislike by the court, the religious authorities. And before each session, he is asked that question. Do you understand that any false testimony you knowingly give will provoke God's great anger in your earthly life and will deliver your soul unto Satan upon your death? Just in case, he might have any ideas that he can say whatever he wants, irregardless of these terrifying, um, what will happen to him if he doesn't answer correctly. It's an almost ironic running joke so antithetical to the work that Johannes the scientist is developing outside the walls of the religious cabinet. But he's unfazed by the questioning. He clearly wants to go above and beyond for his mother which he did in real life. He defended her applying every resource he had even the methodology he might take when applying his proofs and his theories in his mathematical work. He uses anything he can to help her. He does his own investigative research with the town folks. He calls in every favor he has with people of influence. Um, And meanwhile, he's also developing groundbreaking theories about celestial physics and planetary rotation. Keep that in mind. Theories that stand in direct contradiction to the church's beliefs. And it's the church authorities, remember, that are here the ones holding this trial. And and at one point, his mother, Katerina, visits the ducal governor, this guy she calls the false unicorn, Einhorn, who begins to sermonize about those who took their worldly power too seriously and said the true realm of power was elsewhere. That's what the ducal governor is saying, i.e. your son thinks he's so smart and he thinks that he's coming up with these ideas, these newfangled ideas. Mm -mm -mm. He's taking his earthly, his worldly power too seriously. The true realm of power is up in heaven with God or down below with Satan. But he did know, she continues, that some considered my son such a heretic as to bar him from taking communion in the church. Johannes did have worldly power, but his power was like smoke. Any strong wind would disperse it. And it seems like what the author is saying is that at the heart of Katharina's predicament is the jealousy of others, chiefly caused by her flouting their expectations. Towards the end of the novel, once Katharina has been imprisoned and chained up in a cell, which is really what happened to her, socioeconomic envy is revealed to be perhaps the chief motivation between, behind these accusations. Like not only this Ursula, the neighbor who wants a thousand dollars, other witnesses who are called up or other accusers or claim, okay, as long as she repays us this amount for damages and that amount for damages. So it does become mainly economic. Ursula Reinbold, that's the remember the first accuser, sends a letter to this governor concerned that, listen to this at the end, that the steep cost of keeping Katharina in prison will impinge on the monetary reparations for her victims. She says, you know, if the costs of Katharina Kepler's imprisonment are being paid out of the proceeds from the sale of her assets, then that means we're not going to get what we deserve to get out of this because her assets will be smaller. We write do this only, continues Ursula Reinbold, because we wish to bring to your attention what you probably know, which is that compensation from the victims of this dangerous woman is payable from those same finite proceeds of the sale of her assets. Because the, you know you're paying for two guards to keep watch over her all the time, and she's chained by her ankle to the wall, and you know to pay two guards day and night—is that really necessary? I, we think that's superfluous, and we'll empty the coffers, and therefore we won't be the compensation a- appropriate compensation of the victims won't be possible. Nice, eh? Ultimately, Katharina is released from prison, but she must relocate to her daughter's home in a nearby town as Ursula, the accusing neighbor and her cohort threatened to kill her if she stays where she was in her town of Leonburg. And here Rifka Galton takes on her most creative liberties because in reality, it seems that Katharina was acquitted after 14 months of chained custody. She really was kept chained for 14 months. And she died six months after her release. And that was the reality of it. In the book, in the fiction, everyone knows your mother is a witch. On the other hand, she lives longer. Rivka Galshan has her living longer, but she expresses discontent with the new ending of her story. She tells a friend, I wouldn't call it a happy end, to have nothing to give my children, to be unwanted in my own town, and it's on this somber note that Gauchin concludes her story. On the surface, it might seem like a softer landing for an author who's known for her very creative and sometimes wild twists, especially apparently, I didn't read it, but in her first novel, This Atmospheric Disturbances, and in the collection of stories, The American Innovations. But The lack, and those of you who have read it or will read it, the lack of a resounding finale, because there's no resounding finale to it. You finish it and you think, oh, okay. Um, Also lends this historical tale a refreshing realism, bridging the expanse of four centuries that separates the early 1600s from the century... The current times that we live in. It's, it's not a difficult read. It's fun. Um, the voices are fun. The fact that it's based on a real trial makes it all that much more interesting. Galton is clearly a very talented writer, a very intelligent writer. And as a, those of you who haven't read it, I would say give it a read. It's um it's an easy and light summer read, but thought provoking and might get you to go and look up the trial itself as I said at the back she gives links to if you want to read the actual trial records or some letters and the translations of them or to read a bit more about her famous son Johannes Kepler thank you very much for listening um if there are any sorry I should check the chat I don't see anything any questions um And I look forward to seeing you in person. Everything being well next month at the library. Thank you very much.